Good morning. My name is Keith, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, and if I haven't, I hope to, over coffee and bagels. And happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Woo woo. Good job. The passage from Malachi concluded with, return to me, and I'll return to you, declares the Lord. And then the people replied, but how shall we return? And then in James, uh, he concludes that, that section with this answering in this question of what is pure and undefiled religion with the statement uh, to remain unstained from the world. That's hard, right? I mean, think about it. That's hard. We love so many things. We're distracted by so many things. We're drawn to so many things. And not all of them are bad intrinsically, but some of them are. How do we do this? How do we return to you? And is it worth it? Is it worth it? As we open Matthew's gospel, I hope that both of those questions can be answered as Jesus talks to us about John the Baptist. Before we turn there, feel free to turn there to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to work our way to Matthew chapter 11. Consider that the most wonderful things in your life, the most wonderful things that you experience, require the most pain and sacrifice. Do you think that's true? The things that you love the most are the things that have required the most pain and sacrifice. I think that that's true. I think that it's true of our vocations. I was at the dentist recently because I had a broken tooth and it hurt like crazy. And these dentists, the dentist and the dental assistant, were able to fix it, right? While I sat there in the chair and looked at a TV screen that was on the ceiling. (laughs) They fixed it. And I thanked them for going to school. (laughs) Thank you for going to school and for reading all those books and for taking those tests so that you could fix my tooth. Uh, They get joy out of being able to fix people's teeth and send them out the door healed, feeling better, no more symptoms. But it took a lot of pain and sacrifice to get there. And we could go on and on with all the different vocations. And it's not just the training that's required, but it's all the stuff you have to put up with in order to do the parts of your job that you love. Uh, Whether you're a stay-at-home parent or a professor or a fighter pilot or whatever it is, there are aspects of your job that you love and there are aspects of your job that you probably don't love. But you endure that suffering and that pain because you love what you do and you feel called to what you do. Relationships are certainly this way. They're wonderful, but require so much work and often cause deep pain and sacrifice. To the degree that we've been able to experience a degree of peace and joy in our lives, just a sense of calm, a sense of peace, that comes with a deep sense of pain and sacrifice. It comes at the cost of confronting our inner demons and forcing them into the light of day. Like David saying, search me and know me, try me, scour me, and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That doesn't sound fun. 
Like th- that doesn't sound like uh, other passages of David's writing, like green pastures and still water. That sounds like work. Come at me with Brillo pads. Come at me with a searchlight. Find the thorns. Find the places in my heart that are crusted over or antagonistic toward your kingdom, toward your life. But on the other side of that is lead me in the everlasting way. On the other side of that is joy and peace. But it doesn't come easy. So to the degree that we might look at David and see him as a man after God's own heart and full of these wonderful songs and praises, he did that hard work of holding himself under the scrutiny of God's searing gaze and asking God to help him and to heal him. The Gospel of Matthew exists, like all the Gospels, to present Jesus as the Messiah, to introduce him, to proclaim him, to, um, to show us who he is, um, the one who is to come, the one who's been promised for centuries through the Old Testament. But it's not merely there to present Jesus, like, a, like just a biography might. It's there to persuade you to see him to see Jesus and to suffer with him, to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to obtain him and to make your heart and life a throne for him. That's why they're writing these gospels. They're writing to to put Jesus in your face, but but not in an antagonistic way, but, but in a way that presents his beauty and his reality and the marvel of how he fulfills everything that God has been doing and talking about and to push Jesus to you and to, and to persuade you to arrange everything about yourself around him. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus takes an opportunity to speak to you directly about what you have seen and heard from him, about how he's been presented in the last six chapters preceding chapter 11. In chapters five to seven, we've been hearing. Jesus has been talking. Jesus has been using his words, the logos, the word became flesh, and now he's giving us this sermon on the mount for chapters five to seven. That's what's happening. And the immediate upshot of that sermon is that people were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're like... Wow, we have never heard anything like this before. And have we? I mean, think about the things that Jesus says, the wisdom of it, how it pierces the heart, how true it is. We've never heard anything like that before. And that's the end of chapter 7, that they're marveling at his authority. And then we turn the page and we from eight and nine, chapters eight and nine, we see this trove of healing miracles, all kinds of miracles, one after the other. And Jesus is healing all kinds of people. He's healing Israelites. He's healing foreigners. He's healing men and women and children. He's healing downtrodden and outcast people. He's healing people who do the oppressing. He's illustrating, perhaps, in some of these miracles what he was talking about in the sermon, that he loves his enemies. 
Jesus heals every kind of disease and, and he even commands a storm to be silent. He even forgives a paralytic's sins. So we've heard Jesus for three chapters and now we're seeing Jesus healing all of these people and drawing all kinds of people to himself for healing. It's no wonder as John the Baptist is languishing in prison that, and he can't see and hear these things for himself, but he's hearing tell of them. As people come and, and minister to him, they're saying, guess what Jesus just did? Let me, let me, give you, let me read you my notes from that sermon. And, and they're conveying these things to John such that John sends a delegation to Jesus asking, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus tells that delegation of disciples to return to John, telling him what they see and hear. And so the question for us that Matthew would be asking you is what do you see and hear? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. John is inquiring about Jesus not to fact check, I don't think. I think John is asking this because he's marveling at the things he's hearing. He can't believe it. And, and I think that John is probably reflecting on the arc of his life. And, and as the one who's fulfilling that passage that we heard from Malachi, as the one who of the Lord says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. I think that John the Baptist here is like Simeon in Luke's gospel when he held the baby Jesus and do you remember what he said? Now that my eyes have beheld the Messiah, I can die in peace. John understands that his whole role in this epic saga of redemptive history was to prepare the way before the Lord, was to usher in the kingdom of God, was to be the one who would pave the way for Yahweh to come in person and bring his kingdom. Now in chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to us directly about what we have seen and heard for these last six chapters, to help us wrestle along with his disciples and along with John the Baptist's disciples and along with John the Baptist. We're in this sticky moment with Jesus defining who he is and not disagreeing with it and putting himself to us in a way so as we must wrestle with him. What will it mean for you if you believe your own ears and your own eyes? If this is true, what will it mean? Jesus concludes that section with the interaction of John the Baptist with, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So let's look at chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. We're going to see a couple of things here. One is that John the Baptist is a prophet. Jesus defines John first by asking the crowds why they came out to see him. Why did you go out? And you'll remember that a lot of these people, maybe all of them, had been baptized by John. Earlier in chapter 3, 
Um, Matthew writes, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John the Baptist and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So why? Why did you go out to see him? So he asks this in a pointed way. He says, what, what did you come out to see? And that word see, there are a couple of words that, that, that are used in this um, paragraph for that English word, and they're, they're very different. This first one is, what did you come out to see? And it's a word in the Greek um, that means theater. It's the word that we get our word theater from. So, like, what did you come out to gawk at? What kind of spectacle were you expecting when you came out? That's how Jesus is answering it, did you, asking it. Did you come out to see a show? And then he uses the word again, and he says, I'll tell you what you saw. That next word is, I'll tell you what you in fact saw. You saw a prophet. Jesus doesn't want these crowds. He doesn't want us to go home satisfied at having been electrified for a moment by John or by Jesus as some kind of religious phenomenon. He wants us to see that John, in fact, embodies the great signal that God himself has come in the person of the Messiah. Jesus wants to make sure that we get the real significance of John, regardless of our initial motives or our comprehension up to this point. He's pushing it a step further. He says that this is a prophet like no other. He's more than a prophet in verse 9. He says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. And then in verses 13 and 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus describes John the Baptist as greater than all the prophets and all mankind under the old covenant. And yet, lesser than the least of those in the kingdom that John himself is helping to usher in. So this is an interesting phrase, isn't it? You hear all this stuff about John the Baptist being this amazing person. No one born of woman has, is greater than him, and he's Elijah, and he's greater than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. So how is it that the least in the kingdom of God would be greater than him? That's an interesting phrase. When I was in college, like... I rode crew, um, that's rowing, you know, well, it's actually rowing like this. We only had one oar each. It was like 40 years and 50 pounds ago. I was pretty good at it. <laughs> but I remember in these races, 2,000 meter races, it's just grueling, like your whole body is on fire. And uh, you just want to be anywhere else by the end. You know, by three, quarter, three quarters of the way in, you're done. You're just done and you still have 500 meters to go. And the coxswain, who's sitting in the technic, well, he's sitting, and he's able to see the course and steer. Um, he's the one who's calling out the cadence and telling us how much longer we have until it's over, right? And so the coxswain, and we tuned ourselves kind of like how you might trick yourself with an alarm clock by setting the time the wrong way. It, it, that doesn't work for me, but somehow we all agreed or you make this agreement with yourself that whatever the coxswain says is true because he's the only person that can see. And so the coxswain is saying, you know, we're almost there. We just need 
20 more strokes, power 20 in 10. And then you count it down and you do this and then and you say, okay, 10 more, <laughs> you know, and, and you like keep on making these promises um, that the finish line is here. And it felt like for hours he's making these promises and you're ready to die. And all of those promises were nothing for, for however long that lasted. All those promises and even knowing that it's true, that eventually we're going to get there, all those promises were nothing compared to that moment when you actually did cross the finish line and you could just collapse forward in your seat and breathe. Um, and it took maybe five minutes before you could even undo your shoes and get out. Um, but that moment, that single moment when you can finally collapse was better than all of it, all the promises, even the tiniest crumb. How is it that you are greater than John the Baptist. Even the tiniest crumb of actual fulfillment is greater than all the promises and prophecies put together. All the prophets point people back to God like signs in a road. You're going the wrong way. Return to me, get back on track, and one day I'm going to come in person and we're not going to have to have this conversation anymore. I'll write my laws on your hearts and I'll be your shepherd and you'll be my people and all these amazing promises. But, but the prophets are all there pointing us to that time and saying, it's almost there. Take it seriously. Get back on the, on the course. Return to him. That's what all the prophets are doing. John is more than a prophet in the sense that if they're all road signs pointing to God, John as the last prophet, John is Elijah who is to come to be in the face of the, of the Messiah paving the way for him. He's like the foyer for the kingdom of God. So he's not just a sign. You've arrived if you've gotten to John the Baptist, but John the Baptist isn't the mansion. He's not, he's not the, the estate that lies beyond the foyer. He's still just the foyer, but in, in being the foyer and being part of this kingdom, he's still greater than all the prophets. So why is the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John the Baptist. If John the Baptist is this great, well, if the first exodus, when Israel passed through um, Egypt to the promised land was great, in Jesus, God has delivered even more, more than a tiny crumb of fulfillment, more than a tiny crumb of, of realization. This new exodus Jesus isn't just passing from one country to another. Jesus, God in the flesh, is going to pass from human life to death to resurrection. John, like all the prophets, he's been pointing to Christ from outside the reality of Christ, standing in the foyer saying to the world, prepare yourself, make your heart ready, and become the throne of the king who is now here. John was doing that. But the very least of all Christians, on the other hand, we proclaim Christ from not outside of Christ, but from within his body. Even the least in the kingdom of God is, is an integral part of the body of Christ. 
and an heir of his eternal kingdom. We get to say to the world, not come, go, enter in. He's right over there. We get to say, see what he's done for me? Do you see how he's brought me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light? Do you, get, do you see how I was not a people, but now I am his person? That I'm a living member of his very body? That I'm part of the way he gets to say that the body of Christ is the fullness of him who fills all in all? I'm part of that. I'm an extension of God on earth as a member of the body of Christ. John didn't get to say that. He was pushing us into that. So John is greater than anyone born of a woman, but he's less than anyone who has been given the right to become a child of God. So John the Baptist is a prophet, but John the Baptist is also a mirror. This is one of the more interesting phrases I found in this passage and and difficult. From the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? Well, there are a couple of different ways to see this and I don't think it only means one thing and I think that's why Jesus says at the conclusion of this, let him who has ears hear because I don't think it's just one layer. I think there are couple of layers at least going on here. Certainly, the kingdom of heaven is suffering. John the Baptist is in prison. That's the immediate context. But there's another way to interpret this and, and to, re- to, to, to interpret this and to see how these phrases hang together. And that's that the kingdom of heaven has entered into the world forcibly. That God is penetrating into the world and, and changing it. And that the violent receive the kingdom by force, that you receive the kingdom by force, that it requires force for you to receive the kingdom of God. One commentator, Erasmo Maricakis, who Aubrey and Wilson and I have all very much enjoyed reading as we've studied through Matthew together, he says, the mysterious formulation appears to mean that the violence or forcefulness that God himself is using so as to tear down the barriers that the human heart has erected against the advent of grace must be matched by the decision on the part of individuals to respond just as violently and forcefully to receive that grace. The kingdom of God doesn't just fall on us, in other words, like rain. The kingdom of God doesn't just um, dawn upon us like a beautiful sunrise. Oh, look, Jesus is here. Everything's going to be okay. Hooray. It's not this passive movement toward Christ or, or a cognitive reception of Jesus or what did you go out to see? It's not just us seeing Jesus and hearing his truth and nodding and saying, that makes sense. I think I'll believe that. Jesus here is saying not only the thing at face value about um, suffering and persecution and all those things, but underneath it, 
He's saying, if you want to receive this, you're going to have to fight for it. We must be willing to cling to Jesus just as passionately as we clung to our wayward passions, as we still cling to our wayward passions. Jesus says, blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Again, in verse six, if Jesus is this cornerstone that God is putting into human history, if Jesus is this cornerstone that he's putting on your front doorstep and inviting you to hear and see and receive him, if you accept him as a cornerstone, not just as a teacher or a prophet or a nice guy who does miracles or anything like that, but if you really personally receive him as your cornerstone, that's going to mean that you're going to have to um, force reconcile the rest of your life around him. That's what a cornerstone is. That's what a cornerstone does. It's not a decoration. It's not a a nice addition on the back of your house. It doesn't better your house. It defines your house. It defines your life. Wilson summarized the law, well, Jesus did, but Wilson kind of, you know, (laughs) riffed on it a little bit. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is cornerstone language. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to be anxious for his kingdom and for his righteousness in the same ways that we are so naturally disposed to worry about our own kingdom and our own comforts. He uses our natural concerns for our welfare and says, give those to me. Be anxious for my kingdom and for my righteousness. That's violent language. That's hard. That's not an easy transition to make. This is how John the Baptist is a mirror for us. We can look at John the Baptist and consider the outcome of his way of life and imitate his faith. Someone who gave everything in order to make Jesus his prize. Jacob was a mirror like that too. He wrestled with this angel, the violent, take it by force. The leper in chapter 8 was a mirror for us as he risked everything to come publicly before Jesus. He's not allowed to do that. But the violent take it by force. The centurion, right after the leper, he breaks every social norm and uh, every ethnic kind of you know, propriety. And he, and he goes to Jesus and, and defies these social conventions to come into this crowd of Jewish people begging Jesus with faith to heal. The violent take it by force. Jesus told the story of this man who was walking through a field and he comes upon this treasure, this pearl of great price and he decides on the spot, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna pull every lever and sell everything that I can in order to obtain this field and this treasure because it's worth it. The kingdom of God didn't fall on him like rain or rise upon him like a beautiful sunrise. He He sold everything and took it by force. He he arranged his entire life around this treasure, this cornerstone. Every example of saving faith anywhere in scripture conveys sacrifice. It's not easy. Repentance in this sense is taking the kingdom with the force of violent love because we see the beloved as more valuable than whatever it costs us. 
we see Jesus healing. We, we hear Jesus calling us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We hear him instructing us and writing his words on our hearts as he speaks the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, pray the prayer before you read it, Lord, write your law on my heart. That's what will happen. I don't just care about adultery anymore. By reading this, you're moving into my heart and sensitizing me even to lust. I'm not thinking and concerned about whether I'm going to shiv somebody in the back and murder them. As I read this, the Holy Spirit is writing the law on my heart to where now I'm being sensitized to my anger. And as you read this, it's what he's doing. It's beautiful. So is he more worth it? Is he more worth it than the things that we're holding on to? Is he more beautiful? Is this beloved, is the, the advent of the kingdom of God that John is saying, I'm at the end of the line, but y'all go. And he's the one who is to come. Follow him. Align yourself with him. Do whatever it takes to arrange your life around him. That's what's happening here. So the question I believe for us is not at this point, who is Jesus? That's been answered. Who is John the Baptist is important insofar as it points us to who Jesus is. If this is Elijah who is to come, then he's the messenger that God sent before his own face to pave the way. That, that reinforces who Jesus is. Jesus is bringing us with that phrase, the kingdom of Heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. I believe Jesus is putting himself to you and to me after all that we've heard and seen from chapters five through nine. And he's asking you, am I worth it? Am I worth it? Where else are you gonna go? For healing, for wisdom, for this love, for this acceptance, for this peace, for this rest. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. And we are here today to celebrate the fact that we believe he is worth it. But I encourage you, like David, to search your heart. If you've forgotten that this is a fight, if you've forgotten that this is wrestling, if you've forgotten that he's gonna come like Fuller's soap, if you've forgotten that he's gonna always be to you a refiner's fire, burning up dross, bringing it to the surface. If you've slipped into a more comfortable, he comes to me like rain kind of Christianity, I encourage you to pray about that. Talk to people in your small group about it if you're in a small group. If you're in a small group and you don't really have close friends there, find other friends. Still go to small group, but have people that you talk to about it. And look, me and Wilson and Aubrey and Martin and Eric, we're all available. Wilson and Aubrey and I are in the office. That's our normal job. We're upstairs. And if you want to talk to someone about something, please come and talk to us. If there's something that is in your life that you know is in the way that's been a rock in your shoe for a long time and you just want prayer or to confess, come talk to us. Just 
Email Beth and ask to get on our calendar. I have probably eight meetings coming up this week, and they're from everything from um, people who want information about confirmation to um, spiritual gifts to the park. Uh, and, and all those people, they just emailed Beth and said, hey, can I get a meeting with Keith? That's all they say. So if you say, hey, can I get a meeting with Keith? Or can I get a meeting with Keith or Wilson or Aubrey? That's what's, it's discreet. So please reach out. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.